Um, and so therefore, it had to be written afterward, was, was their idea. And so basically, they had this concept of a proto-Isaiah and a deutero-Isaiah. So it's, you know, the one guy talked about the bad news, and another guy talked about the good news, and he came later. Uh, the good news uh, that settles this for me is that in the New Testament, Jesus quotes Isaiah several times. And he quotes passages from the early parts of Isaiah and the later parts of Isaiah, and he attributes it every time to one guy, to the son of Amos, prophet, the prophet Isaiah. So I don't know how there is an argument, but anyway, so the, my point in bringing all that up is just that it was such a drastic change that people have, you know, scratched their heads for centuries. Like, why does this book take such a turn? And uh, uh, I'm glad that it does, because we're going to get some good stuff from here on out. Before we get into the rest of it, though, let's pray, and we'll ask God to help us understand it. Lord, we thank you uh, this, mor- this evening for uh, letting us be here together uh, and for preserving your holy word. Uh, it's a difficult book. People, uh, like we were just talking about, had lots of ideas of even its authorship and what it could mean and not mean. But Lord, we know that um, you're not the author of confusion, that you want to be known. You tell us that if we lack wisdom, let us ask, and you want to give it. You want us to understand. So Lord, we just pray that uh, you would help us to do that tonight. Help us understand the truth uh, here in your word. And through that, to understand who we are in you and who uh, we can be and what your will is for us. Help us to understand you and know you better through this study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Isaiah 40, verse 1. He says, Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. That right there is a hard turn, right? Up until this point, it's been woe, Woe, my people. Doom, oh doom, my people. And now he says, comfort. Comfort, my people. Verse 2, speak kindly to Jerusalem. And call out to her that her warfare has ended. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So there's a lot here in this verse, but he says, speak kindly. And that's, that's, an, that's a fine translation, but when you look into this, the language, the original language, um, it's a little deeper than that. It's more like speak to their heart. Speak to their heart. You know, comfort, oh comfort my people, now speak to their heart. And we can take a lot from just that, right? That we, when we speak to people, when you speak, especially if you're speaking about the Lord, don't just use your, your canned lines, right? The things that you've heard and you just repeat. You need to, you need to uh, be real with people. Don't just use a script. Be real with people. Speak to their heart. I, I have to remind myself, you know, I come in here on Sunday mornings. I come in uh, a little earlier uh, than probably I need to and, and Part of that's I'm a control freak and I want to make sure everything's working. But part of it too is I walk around and I, I look at the seats and I try to pray over the rows and, and remind myself that there is going to be a broken heart in every pew, in every row, in every seat. Every person you meet, 
has pain in their life. And they're real people, and it's real pain, and they really need Jesus. So he says, speak kindly, speak to the heart. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, and that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now this, again, doesn't translate over in English very smoothly. Um, it doesn't mean like he, you're getting twice the punishment or twice the judgment or anything like that. It, the, he's referring, I think, to um, in, the, in, in those times, there was a, uh, a financial system in place in that part of the world that worked a certain way. And so when you, uh, when you, well, let me backtrack. Before that, in the Old Testament, the law required that when you sin against another person, that you pay back more than you took, right? We, oftentimes, we repeat eye for an eye and all that stuff. That was common, but when, it, when you really injured someone or you caused them uh, to lose something, you didn't just pay back equal. Usually, you had to pay back double. You can read that in Exodus 22, I think it's verse 9. Uh, it says that, uh, you know, he whom the judge condemns shall pay double. So it could be that, but I also think there was this system in place uh, that wasn't just in the Bible, it was a common law of the time, that if you filed what we call bankruptcy, right, you get, you, you build up a bunch of debts that you can't pay, the custom was you had to post all of your debts on your door, on a papyrus or you know, animal skin or whatever, and you would write out, Here, I owe Ben this much, and I owe Scotty this much, and, and you would post that there. And it had to stay there for quite some time. And so if you, you, know, you post those, all those debts and then you go out and buy a new camel, you know, people are like, hey, what are you doing buying a new camel when you haven't paid Ben back? You know, yeah, that's really kind of a good custom. Actually, a lot of, a lot of our, um, our laws here in the United States are kind of loosely based on some of these things. Uh, that's why bankruptcies are posted in, in the newspaper. and There's a whole seven-year thing that ties back to the Jubilee and all that. Anyway, uh, but if someone, if you had someone who, um, some benefactor who cared so much for you that they would come and pay all of your debts for you, they would take that, uh, that papyrus off of your door, and you would fold it in half, and then you'd write on it, um, basically paid in full, but, but what that was called was being doubled over. Your debts are doubled over, it's folded over, it's done, Right? So her iniquity has been removed. She has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins, or their, her, their sins have been doubled over. They've been paid for. And so God, he wants to speak comfort to us, right? That the war is over, the victory is won, and everything that separated you from God has been wiped away. It's been paid for. It's been pardoned by the blood of Jesus. We're two whole verses in. Let's, we'll keep moving here. Verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the, gro- uh, the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now that may sound kind of familiar to you. You may, maybe you're used to hearing it from the King James, but all four Gospels quote this section of Isaiah. And they say, they all agree that it was fulfilled um, in and through John the Baptist. So you can read about it in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3 and John 1. Uh, but we'll read, a, uh, we'll read it out of Matthew. Matthew 3, verse 1, it says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And I love when people will still debate on whether this is a fulfillment of that. I'm like, it literally says, this was what Isaiah was talking about, right? So John the Baptist, he came preaching the message of, of repentance that, you know, as people were convicted of their sin, you know, he, he, he let everybody know, hey, that he held up a mirror in front of them and said, look, this is how short we're falling from God's standard. And they were convicted of their sin, and he says, so our response to that should be to repent, right? We're, we're willing to turn away from the old way to something new. And if you're in that position, when you're willing to make that kind of change, then, then your heart is in the condition of being ready to receive the gospel of Jesus. That's, that's what he was getting at. And so Jesus came and he began his work. And of course, if, we, if you've read ahead, you know that Israel, um, they ultimately rejected him. But he's coming back a second time. So Isaiah 40, verse 5, it says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, his glory was, was revealed at the Mount of Transfiguration. A few people saw his glory. When he comes back, the whole earth will witness him in all his glory. Now, of course, if you've been with us for a while, you know that Isaiah loves to deal in, in dual fulfillment prophecies, right? They always mean more than what it seems. I think, you know, he knew that there was a yet-to-even-be-born generation in Judah who were going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. We've talked a lot about that in the last month or so. And in the, in the wilderness, if you want to call it that, of their captivity, uh, they, would ha they would begin to reform their faith, right? They lost... All of their roots, almost. But a few people preserved the, you know, a, a remnant of the truth. And, and they had to reform their faith. And, and they would eventually come back and rebuild Jerusalem. Kevin, in the announcements on Sunday, he talked about Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, you, you see this sequence of events where they're rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. And they find this scroll with the law on it. And all the people gather around and, and they listen to it. And then they freshly vow to walk in obedience to it and, and to walk with the Lord. They make a, kind of a new covenant with, 
with the Lord. That, hey, we're going to follow what this says. So in other words, they were, they, they were going to go through the wilderness, but it was going to prepare them to once again walk with the Lord. So in the short term, that you know, it's still 50, 60 years ahead of Isaiah's time, but that's the short term, you know. Uh, that was kind of how it was going to be fulfilled. But in the long term, we see John the Baptist and Jesus and all of that. But the point, I think, is, in all this is that, you know, get things straightened out, right? John the Baptist said, you know, make straight the way of the Lord. Get things straightened out, and you'll catch a, a glimpse of God's glory. If you're depressed, remembering his love for you uh, will help you to look up and catch a glimpse of him. If you're full of pride and all puffed up, humbling yourself and getting down on your knees will help you catch a glimpse of him. Remember that uh, old Motown song? Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low. You know, they pulled that from an old gospel song, and it was from, from Isaiah. Make straight the way. You know, whatever it is that's hindering you from seeing him clearly, if it's a hill, knock it down. If it's a valley, look up. Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says this. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In other words, whatever it is that's keeping you from looking to Him is worth casting aside. Look to Him. Look, keep your eyes on Him. Make straight the way of the Lord. We're going to go back. Isaiah 40, we've got some more ground to cover here. Verse 6, it says, A voice says, Call out. And then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oddly enough, uh, you know, we're in, we're in First Peter on Sundays, and this Sunday we're probably going to be covering that same verse because Peter quotes it. But Isaiah is just reminding us, look, the things that we're impressed with will wither. The trials that scare us will fade. Everything is temporary. But the Word of God stands forever. You know, in my life, in my lifetime, um, I have seen eggs be considered a healthy breakfast and then not. Uh, and then just the whites were okay. And then it's, well, no, skip the whites. You need the protein of the yolk 
and now they're back to healthy again. And then they're about to be a dollar a piece, so I don't know. You know, truth doesn't actually change, right? It's either true or it's not. But most things in our life are, are in flux, right? We don't, I don't know, if are eggs healthy or not? I, don't, I think, you know. But I do know that God's word never goes out of style. He never uh, was the Savior, then maybe not the Savior, and then now he is again. No, it, it's one thing that's constant. Verse 9, he says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. He says, Remember your role. You are a witness, right? You're supposed, you are a bearer of good news. Supposed to be telling people about it, and you know I'm, I'm naturally wired to um, you know I'm an I'm an introvert and and uh, I'm like Eeyore, right? You know it's it's not much of a tale, but I'm attached to it. You know I, I'm not normally uh, an upbeat person, but you know I get a little bit animated when I talk about Jesus, and you if I can, you can. Right. One, uh, one preacher I like to listen to uh, is a guy named John Corson. And I heard him say about this that uh, he says, When I look at the world, I'm distressed. And when I look too long at myself, I'm depressed. But when I look at the Lord, I'm blessed. Right? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we should be able to tell people about Jesus because we've been looking at him and, and thinking about him, and, and he's a part of who we are and what we do and how we walk and how we talk and how we live and how we breathe and all of that. Verse 10, he says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. I thought really hard about going into the 23rd Psalm. Um, you know, if you really study that out, it, it gives just great description of how a shepherd treats his flock. But there's something interesting there. He says, in his arm, he will gather the lambs. And carry them in his bosom. You know, do you know when a shepherd carries a lamb? Yeah, when he has to break its leg. When a lamb continues to stray from the flock, for that lamb's protection, the shepherd will take his staff and break its leg. And then he will carry that lamb until that lamb's leg is healed. So that it will never stray, and he comforts it and protects it when, you know, it's defenseless now. But it was the best thing for it because if it wanders off by itself, it'll be destroyed. You know, when I'm doing bad, uh, 
the good shepherd doesn't cast me away. He scoops me up. He carries me in his bosom. He also says he will gently lead the nursing you, so the, the, the moms and the babies, right? The ones that are caring for others. He takes care of those who are caring for others. Verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span. In other words, the distance between his thumb and his index finger. Calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. So in other words, who but him could do all of those things? A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. The nearest star uh, to Earth is Alpha Centauri. That's 4.3 light years from Earth. Our solar system is 30,000 light years away from the center of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. And, and scientists now believe that there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the universe. When I was a kid, that number was 40 billion. And now that we have better telescopes and stuff, we've figured out, oh, it's, it's even bigger. And the weirdest, the craziest thing to me is they're like, that distance is infinite and it's expanding. How does that work? It has no end, but also the end is getting further away. And Isaiah says God can measure all of that in his hand. He's big, is the point, right? God's big. Verse 13. Who, and thinking of all that, he's so big that he holds all of that in his hand. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him. You know, Paul quotes that in uh, Romans 11, 30-something, 30 33 or 34, and in 1 Corinthians 2, I don't remember the verse there, but uh, Paul loved to quote this, that, you know, who, who gives God counsel? Who can tell him, what it, you know, what's up? And the sad reality is, I know that I have tried to do that. I have tried to take on that role. Direct your prayers to the Lord without giving him direction would be my advice. Uh, you know, he tells us to talk to him and cast, you know, cast all of your cares upon him and then leave it to him. I was talking with um, Mark the other day about this, that there's this weird tension, right? We tell people, you know, pray specifically. Let God really know. But at the same time, don't, give, don't, don't try to tell God what to do. But, but if you're praying specifically, are you telling God what to do, right? Like it's, it's this weird tension. And I think it's, you know, be very specific of, about, Lord, here's what's going on. He already knows, but he wants you to tell him, right? Here's what's going on. Now you do what 
you think is best. You know, when Mary and Martha, they sent word to, uh, to Jesus about their brother Lazarus, right? That he, and, and they send word to him, they just say, the one that you love is sick. That's it. They didn't say, so come heal him or anything. They just said, here's what's going on. And that resulted, of course, in Lazarus' resurrection, right? Jesus, you know, he comes when G- Lazarus has already been dead for a few days. And, and that's what, if they, I, maybe Jesus would have healed him if they had asked that. But what resulted was something grander, right? Something bigger, something more miraculous than what they would have asked for. So I think, you know, God gives his best to those who leave the choice to him. But it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to assume that someone other than you knows best. We'll read on here. Verse 14. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So, you know, Lebanon was known for its, um, for its forests, its, you know, its great trees. And it's why, you know, it was at the time, it was a, like a, almost a wildlife preserve, right? It was beautiful, full of nature. And, and he says, even Lebanon doesn't have enough trees to burn or enough animals to sacrifice to, to do it justice. Verse 17, he says, all the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. You know, America is awesome. But patriotism can very quickly turn into idolatry. We can let our our love of our country override our duty uh, to show the love of Christ to every tribe and tongue, right? We can get very territorial, and we love America first, right? That's not that's not I, the ideal, right? I get it. I love America, um, but he God warns us over and over. Hey, don't put your trust in horses and chariots. Don't put your trust in in men. Don't put your trust in armies. Your little imaginary boundaries weren't weren't set there by me. And he says, he says that nations don't just mean nothing to him. He says they mean less than nothing. Because even the best country, the best system of government, is not what God had in mind for us. Uh, no matter what your preferred form of government is, uh, 
God's form of government is a theocracy. Jesus Christ on the throne. God in, on the throne here on earth. That's his design. So I think ours is probably, you know, the, the best we've come up with so far. But it's still not what he has in mind for us. So Isaiah, he compares God to the, um, to the idols that the people worship, right? He, uh, he, he, he already told them, like, nations don't mean that much to me. As a matter of fact, they mean nothing. They mean less than nothing. And then all the other idols that you have, that you worship instead of me, verse 18, he says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. So like people that couldn't afford a gold idol, they, maybe they carve a nice wooden one. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. In other words, you know, he goes out of his way to make a, an idol that will set flat, won't wobble. Because it's really embarrassing when your God falls over. That's what he's getting at, right? Like, these things that you, you worship instead of me, they all fall over. They all fail. Verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sets above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He sits above the circle of the earth. That word there, it really means um, a sphere. Or like a globe. Now think about this. In ancient times, the Greeks thought that a giant named Atlas was holding up the earth. Uh, the people of India taught that it was on the back of elephants. People of South America thought the earth was on the back of a giant tortoise. The earliest written work in the Bible is the book of Job. Now, Genesis talks about the earliest events, but Job is the earliest written down. In Job 26, verse 7, it says this. He says, uh, it says he stretches out the north over empty space, and he hangs the earth on what? On nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds. And the cloud does not burst under them. So this is more than a thousand years before Galileo. Uh, the Bible is talking about atmospheric pressure and gravity, and you know that the Earth is a globe; it's not flat. Now, people can get this twisted. The Bible does not present itself as a science book and that does not purport to be one but when it does talk about science it's right and so long before the smart people figured out that the earth was not flat and it wasn't on the back of a turtle god was already telling everybody how it is 
Isaiah 40, verse 23, it says, uh, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. The judges of the earth meaningless. You know, the Supreme Court is not the highest court. It's the highest court in our land, right? But he's reminding us those judges are not the judges that matter. That's not the judgment that matters. It's kind of interesting. You know, the Supreme Court, until 1935, they met in a room that was actually under the Capitol, uh, below the Senate in the House. And that was on purpose. It wasn't because there was no budget to build a place for them. It was originally designed so that, you know, the, the people who made the laws were above the court. And the court, their role was to not make law, but to just execute it and to make sure it was carried out. And so they were considered to be below, even though they, they had a system of balances, checks and balances. Uh, about 1935, they... they changed their tune and wanted a nice, big, fancy building. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but I just think it's interesting. Uh, Verse 24 says, Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. So what do you turn to with your problems? Right? These th- things that will just blow away and, and aren't permanent. Who do you turn to for wisdom ahead of him? Verse 26, he says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. Uh, again, scientists, they estimate now that there are 200 sextillion stars in the universe. If you don't know what that number is, it's 200 billion trillion. I still can't picture that, right? It's just a bunch of zeros. But here's what's crazy. All those stars, it says, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? A God who knows the name of all 200 sextillion stars, you think he doesn't notice what's going on in your life. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Look, you notice there was a word that popped up in there a few times. Weary. Weary and tired. We think of those as the same thing. Weary is when you are tired of someone or something. It's okay to grow tired in the work, but don't grow tired of the work. It's okay to grow tired serving people, but don't grow tired of people. 
And then he says this at the very end. I know we're kind of running long. He says, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. And this wait, this word here, it's not inaction. Think of it like a waiter in a restaurant. They await your command. A good waiter, right? They await your command. They serve their master. They carry out their orders. And they keep an eye out for every opportunity to be of service. When you wait on the Lord like that, he says, you'll get new strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not get tired. They walk and not become weary. But you notice this order. it, It doesn't, you think, walk, run, fly, right? But he does it in reverse because oftentimes when we're excited, right, those, hot, those mountaintop moments when everything's going great, we're soaring. Then we get busy serving and we're running. And eventually you will get tired. Keep going. Keep walking. That's where, that's where the fruit is. That's where the good stuff is. All right, let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for giving us an opportunity to study your word. We thank you that um, you've made these promises to us. Lord, uh, may we never, even though we grow tired in the work, may we never grow tired of the work. And Lord, let us help, to, help us to see people the way you see them. Knowing that every heart is broken and in a need of you. Lord, help us to not be weary and tired. Give us new strength, new zeal to follow and serve you. Lord, we thank you for your son. We pray he comes and comes quickly. And all God's people said, amen. All right, ready? Break.